If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 163 of the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Jack Corson. Jack is the Associate Director for Professional Development at the American Speech-Language Hearing Association. He's also someone we've known for many years and who always has interesting and insightful thoughts to share about this whole business of lifelong learning in which we all work. Before we turn to the conversation with Jack, we have a couple of preliminary messages we want to share. First, we want to encourage you to connect with us and tell us your thoughts about the Leading Learning Podcast, whether that means comments on a specific episode or ways in which we can better serve you with the content that we share. There are a number of ways that you can do that, and we'll highlight three here. First, we publish show notes for every episode, and there's a place to submit comments at the bottom of every show notes page. You can get to the show notes for a particular episode by adding slash episode number after leadinglearning.com. So, for example, the show notes for this episode are available at leadinglearning.com slash episode 163. And you can also find Leading Learning, of course, on Facebook at facebook.com slash leading lifelong learning. And you can comment there or message us. And if you like the page, you'll receive valuable content from us on an ongoing basis. Last, but certainly not least, you can send us an email at leadinglearning at tagoras.com. Whichever method you choose, we really would like to hear from you. Yes, indeed, we truly would. So please don't hesitate to let us know your thoughts at any time. In the meantime, we want to let you know about our sponsor for this episode. Our sponsor for this episode is Learning Technology Design, our annual virtual conference. LTD is designed specifically for those who work in the business of lifelong learning, continuing education, and professional development. This will be our fourth time offering LTD, and we know from feedback we've received that past attendees have found it to be a unique and highly valuable experience. Registration is open now at ltd.tagoras.com. We're also offering the opportunity to be a patron for the event, and this option might be of interest to companies that serve learning businesses. You can find out by going to ltd.tagoras.com patron, and we'll highlight some of our current patrons, including 360 Factor, Authentic Learning Labs, Avalar, Digitel, EventGuard, Review My LMS, and Web Courseworks. We've highlighted these patrons on the LTD website, and we'll also include links to them in the show notes. And definitely do take time to find out more about them, because these are companies that have demonstrated their commitment to learning businesses by becoming patrons. So we really do encourage you to support them. So now, let's get to the interview with Jack Corson. As, as I've already said, Jack just always has interesting and insightful things to say. So, Salisa, can, can you give us a bit of a preview of what you're going to cover? Well, yes. Uh, what we focus most of our discussion on is a micro-learning initiative that the American Speech-Language Hearing Association has recently launched. Um, we talk about the why and the what of Asha's micro-learning, and we definitely dig into the business model behind what Asha's offering. 
Um, we also then get into some other uh, areas as well. As you said, Jack's very thoughtful in general. Um, we talk a bit about his perspective on smile sheets. You know, smile sheets have come under the gun a lot, um, you know, around just the fact that they uh, don't really measure learning. And his point is, they weren't really necessarily designed to measure learning and that from his perspective, it's very important to make sure that learners are satisfied and smile sheets actually can help with that. And then, of course, we wrap up with um, Jack's view of, of the state of learning in general and kind of what's on the horizon that is exciting him right now. Well, this... I mean, if you have any interest whatsoever in microlearning, and we know that many, many organizations do at this point, um, this may be the most practically useful episode of the year. We've had a lot of great ones, but uh, listening into this, this is a really strong one, and you definitely want to hear what Jack and, and Ash have been up to with microlearning. And, and also, uh, I thought it was interesting when he was talking about smile sheets and some of those myths that are out there that uh, you know people are trying to bust uh, these days. I mean, he makes some comments that, for me, really make it clear why being in the the learning business where, you know, you have to actually market and sell and convince people to hand over money for courses is very different from, for example, being in traditional corporate learning and development who who like to refer to themselves as being in the learning business. But it's it's a different game, um, really. And and it really is the reason why we created an event like LTD um, and this podcast and everything else we do. So I think his comments really kind of get at the, the heart of that. Um, so this is, a, this is just a, a fantastic interview. Um, and I'm going to stop talking so we can get on to hearing what Jack Corson has to say. Hello and welcome. I'm Salisa Steele. This is the Leading Learning Podcast, and today I'm joined by Jack Corson. Jack is the Associate Director for Professional Development at the American Speech Language Hearing Association. Asha is the National Professional Scientific and Credentialing Association for Audiologists, Speech Language Pathologists, Speech Language and Hearing Scientists, Odiology, and Speech Language Pathology Support Personnel and Students. At ASHA, Jack is responsible for the strategic planning and the budget for the professional development unit, and he works directly with subject matter expert volunteers to create educational programs. And since 2006, his focus has been on web-based content delivery, including the recent edition of microlearning, which we're going to talk about more in just a minute. But I'm going to pause here to say, Jack, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for asking me. So to start us off, I want to give you the chance to say uh, more about your background and your work and about Asha. What else would you highlight for listeners before we dig into some of what you're working on? Sure. Um, well, ASHA is a professional association. We serve two professions, audiology and speech-language pathology. We have just shy of about 20,000 members spread out all over the country, the vast majority of our members are professional women with advanced degrees who work in a variety of different sort of work settings, um, schools, healthcare, private practice, academics. They serve the needs of clients from both birth to end of life. So it's, um, it's really mini groups with diverse needs. And as you mentioned, the team I'm on is professional development. Um, I have the privilege to work with a team of seven extraordinarily talented people um, and in close partnership with um, several more really exceptional, exceptionally talented people on other teams at ASHA. And it's the sort of group that um, 
that really helps me elevate my own game. Um, I'm kind of one of those horribly insufferable types who just loves their job way too much. <laughs> um, we're a non-dues revenue team, and we're expected to deliver a positive bottom line to ASHA. Um, because of that, we tend to make decisions looking through the lens of both member impact and non-dues revenue potential, and which I, I think those two things in many respects are two sides of the same coin. Mm. We offer courses for ASHA CEUs, so continuing education units. Um, we're one of over 500 approved providers of courses eligible for ASHA CEUs. Um, so they're all overseen by a different team within ASHA, and it, it, essentially it's a highly competitive landscape. And because of that, we really try to assume um, an entrepreneurial business approach. At any given time, we have more than... A thousand hours of educational products, mm -hmm. um, spanning five overarching um, product categories. So those include just briefly um, an in-person event, not not the ASHA convention. Too, that's actually that is a massive affair. It takes an entire team to manage. Um, it's, it's rather our team manages a smaller in-person event. We also offer online conferences. I helped develop the first one back in 2006, so we have a long history of that. Uh, webinars, journal products, e-learning, multimedia, multimedia. Now, almost exclusively online courses rather than physical products. We've pretty much are done with that transition. Um, within those broader categories and in terms of how we run the business, we very intentionally try to... I don't know if push the envelope is exactly the right way to say it, because that's probably not right, but um, indulge our passion for the mm. business of education and sort of try and do interesting things or things that we think are interesting and like doing. Well, that's great. And I, I've known you for a number of years uh, at this point. I've admired the critical thinking that you apply to, to running <laughs> the learning business. And I wanted to get you on the, the podcast for a while now. And what finally made it um, happen is a micro-learning initiative that Asha has recently launched. And so what I'd like to ask you to do is give us a, a brief history of both the why and the what of, of Asha's micro-learning. So we know what are you doing with it and sort of what um, made you want to get into micro-learning in the first place. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll take the second first. Um, and I think that we've all been kind of thinking of this idea that um, no one has any time. Mm. And um, and so the competitive landscape for a person's attention is really so dramatically different now in a way in which I kind of imagine the historians of the future will characterize this moment in, in sort of very superlative terms. Um, and among the tidal wave of implications from that comes sort of the basic notion that um, if your course stinks, someone's just going to stare out their phone and wait out the clock. Mm. Um, and early ideas on microlearning, um, at least that I kind of saw, were maybe more fundamentally about content in smaller bites. So, you know, kind of the easy option would be to just take a big course and chop it up a bunch. And that really never... Um, it never seemed to address the problem or do anything particularly good for the learner to me. Um, some organizations have actually done some really interesting things in this space um, with novel ideas that really leverage advantages of sort of small form education. And you actually, you guys had a podcast not long ago um, by someone, and I forgive me, I'm so awful with names, but who had a fascinating series of micro courses that were tied to recertification. 
I think you even mentioned my name on that one, but the hat tip really goes to Chris Urena, who pointed that out, that gem out to me. Uh. So, so that was really awesome, um, but not really f- exactly feasible for a team that approach. Um, plus, I'm I'm a little bit of an opportunity cost junkie, so whenever I look at new ideas or innovating approaches, just coming up with a great solution isn't really sufficient. Um, the solution also needs to be very. Uh, very efficient and repeatable so that the level of effort that it takes sets a return on investment that looks favorable when compared to our other courses and our other approaches. So I've been thinking about it off and on for the past couple of years. And actually, I think that kind of peaked a little bit at last year's LTD conference where um, I think I just sort of decided to come up with a framework, and I, I did, and I think I actually posted the yeah, concept. Yeah, you did. You should. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did that, and then, you know, kind of usual, um, a little bit later this past summer, a colleague of mine was showing me some examples of a cool new video project that he was developing, and there was a point in the presentation where the speaker was going through these really practical examples that helped illustrate what she was talking about, and that moment just sort of jumped out at me and I felt, I don't know if I literally said it, but I was like, yes, that. Um, and I kind of at the same time realized that unless I did something kind of now, basically now, it was just going to stay on my to-do list forever. We, we just have so much stuff that's constantly going on. So in, in that moment, I really kind of just buckled down and clarified the concept and created a framework. And then I set a meeting up with um, an SLP who worked at Ash on staff and sort of talked with her about the idea. She seemed to really like it too. Um, we came up with the name of a speaker and they reached out to the speaker with the idea sort of about the new sort of theoretical framework and some thoughts on a potential course. She totally loved the idea and was very interested in working together. Um, but her fall was looking really, really busy. This was this past summer. Um, so she wanted to do it right now. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that kind of like, it was the moment where the theory was like, now I need to actually do something. I need to really have something together. And it really lit a fire under me to pull various colleagues together quickly because kind of were creating an entirely new product line to some degree, and we wanted to do it in a way that was prudent so that since it was brand new and uncertain, we didn't over-engineer it, but still gave it the kind of love that we want to give to every product. Um, anyway, three months after that, four courses were released in the Asha store. And um, in terms of what they are, the, the, the approach is courses are mainly about doing something at work and they comprise of five-minute activities so that they're actually feasible to do at work. So the speaker exposes the learner to a new way of doing something that really helps them solve, um, ideally solve a relevant challenge. Um, and then after that, shows you a bunch of examples of how that that's done. Um, and those two things are two five-minute activities. And after that 10 minutes, uh, the learner should be ready to try the idea on their own with some scaffolding. Um, that's kind of the the the, the point. <laughs> um, and the rest of the course really is the learner taking the lead. So they're going to create a plan. They're going to enact the plan. So practice the concept at work. They're going to reflect on how that went. And then they're going to consider how they'll be able to integrate this new method or approach into their practice moving forward. And as I sort of hinted a second ago, the speaker does provide some scaffolding. So, for instance, um, 
you know, she offers a plan B option if you don't have a client right now who this concept isn't appropriate for and that sort of thing. Um, all told, those that's that's 30 minutes right there. Um, and that's the minimum increment for ASHA CEUs. And one of the things that um, has kind of become more apparent is that concept is so modular that we can really, on, on one hand, we can develop a handful of microcourses at once to ensure we're kind of executing the idea in a very efficient way, or we could embed one of those 30-minute practice processes in a different course, or we could use it as an extender on an existing course, or kind of anything. It's pretty versatile. It's turned out to be pretty versatile. Yeah, so that modular aspect was something that I noticed in in what I've seen about uh, the offering, and that um, that it can be used in these different ways. Sort of each um, of the short courses could be used independently. You could Mm -hmm. you're you're offering them as a bundle as well, Mm -hmm. Um, and then it sounds like too you're looking at tying them to other things that you already have in your portfolio of, of offerings. Yeah. Um, do you have a sense of kind of how they're primarily being used? Are you getting more sort of <laughs> uptake on the, them as short courses or as mm-hmm. a, the bundle or, you know, any sort of insight that you've learned so far in terms of which kind of format or use of them sure. is, is most popular? Well, since they they kind of just came out, so it's um, it's probably a little too soon to talk about it with a ton of confidence, but I can... Um, sort of share a couple of observations, early observations. On the the member impact side of things, at least from the surveys, the folks completing the series, uh, their responses is really are really stellar. And it feels, sort of fundamentally, it, it feels from that response that it does fill a real niche for folks. Mm. Um, we've also got really strong positive reaction from a lot of speakers, both the speaker that I worked with, but um, sort of coincidentally, we were far into program planning for next year over the summer. And so as I was developing that, um, a colleague of mine was trying to reach out to a really well-known speaker um, to do a course within the next year. And that speaker is super interested in in kind of making real efforts at learning that could truly make a difference. Um, she kind of is not really into normal courses anymore. And she actually declined the invite initially because she doesn't want to do those sort of traditional, you know, lecture court, two hour lecture courses anymore. Um, and my colleague broached this new, um, this new idea as an option and the speaker really loved it and she agreed to do the course. So that I think is very encouraging too. Um, on the other side of it is revenue, of course. Mm-hmm. And given that the the, the courses just came out. It's a little early to tell. Um, collectively, we're over, I think, probably over 150 enrollments. Um, all along, though, my sense is um, that this type of approach in CE is so different from the norm um, that it really is going to take a long time to take, or it's going to take a, a while to really take hold. Ultimately, though, I think that it does fill um, a very nice niche that and could be a great tool in in like um in our overall toolbox to use in various different ways well so you know you were talking about the the, the revenue piece there and i know that I, I think a lot of folks are thinking about micro learning but they're they're sort of seeing monetization as a hurdle um yeah. and you know are learners going to value something so small and value it enough to pay for it and, and mm-hmm. i know a lot of the business models i've seen have 
have uh, you know relied on a, a subscription model. So the micro learning is really a part of a, a larger set of, of products that people get mm-hmm. access to, or it's even maybe a member benefit so that they're um, you know getting access to the micro learning, but they're not paying for it separately. Mm-hmm. So I, what I'm interested in though is hearing about kind of your thought process or your thinking when when you guys were looking at okay what's the business model for this and you know how mm-hmm. do we set pricing what 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 did you take into account we tend to price around how many hours of CE content is, ex- mm. is included um, and with some notions of our costs, so both direct and staff time. And because of that, um, really because that we of, of that method of approaching pricing, it, again, was so essential that the idea itself be easy and inexpensive to execute so that micro courses could be competitively priced. The, it was going to be worthless if it was going to take a massive amount of effort because we would it would just be infe- you know impossible to make any return. Um, so because of the way that we I developed it, it really is very easy to produce. And so because of that, we can price it on the lower end of the s- spectrum. Um, again, because of the structure, you know, we were able to create four courses at once. It was really easy to do that. And again, but they've, as you mentioned before, each one of them both stands out on its own, but it's also complement. They're all complementary too. So because of the fact that they're complementary, we could offer, we could group them together into a best buy at a discount. Um, so further kind of like helping, uh, a good deal you know, good value for people. And is it okay to share the the pricing? I mean, I think it's publicly out there. Is that right? Yeah, I don't actually like. That's not kind of the one of the points I keep in the top of my mind. But well, if anybody's I, curious, just go to the Asha store yeah, and you can well, see it all there. And I took a look at it because I was, you know, curious. And it looks like it's the member pricing is twenty dollars for each of the thirty minute micro courses, and then the bundle, like you're saying, comes at a saving. So four course bundle is seventy two dollars for members. Okay, yeah, so. that sounds right. It's kind of, and that is, um, you know, we're our current model is definitely the one one off products. So you pay per product, and that is more on the inexpensive side for our stuff. Mm-hmm. And I know you you brought it up because when you're talking about the price, that you often tie that both to your internal costs, but also around the CEUs. And and you mentioned too that the thirty minutes is is the smallest and at which um, someone can earn an ASHA CEU. Is this the first time that you guys are, are working right at that 30-minute threshold, or have you had other offerings um, down at that lowest accepted um, length? <laughs> uh, we've done it quite a quite a bunch before. Okay. Actually, I think that the first time we really made a big push, I think that the first time we made a big push for the 30-minute course is back in, um, in 2015, and that was actually, that's when we launched a, a whole series of free courses, and that, that entire series was uh, really epic, and uh, I think we could do a whole thing just on that. Uh, you yeah. know, more than, more than 60,000 members, 150,000 hours of engagement, significant halo impact on non-news revenue, um, but it's, it's really like a whole other... You know, I could talk forever just about that. <laughs> yeah, but, but, oh, I remember you sharing a little bit again in the discussion forums around LTD, and yeah. that was um, a very interesting topic. Well, we'll have to get you back on the <laughs> Leading Learning Podcast to talk about those free courses a- another time. 
But back to that underlying question, though, we'd actually been talking with the group at ASHA that accredits providers of courses for ASHA CEUs, and and they themselves have been really actively exploring offering credits in smaller increments. I don't know exactly when it happened, but several years ago now, they switched over to half-hour increments. And and so that's that was it was an easy fit for us there. Okay, so no real, uh, you didn't have to do too much um, fighting or case making around that. That was all done several years, years ago. ago. So we'd been at that for a long time, many years ago, and we had already sort of solved that problem. Yeah. Well, good. Um, you know, I, I want to ask you a question about sort of your perspective on micro learning. Um, in general, and, and I think some of your earlier comments maybe sort of you know hint at what your perception might be. But you know, I'm just wondering if we're in danger of, of micro learning sort of becoming a another check the box trend. You know, are we in danger of sort of everyone saying, "Oh, I'm going to do micro learning" because they think that they're supposed to, and then what we really end up with is you know a lot of worthless short content kind of clogging up LMSs and, and inboxes. What's your mm-hmm. thought there? Um, probably, uh, you, you know, I think, I think with most novel concepts, the vast majority of early implementation aren't, aren't always the best. Uh, actually, uh, you know, sort of a, 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 a quote, a quote from Clay Shirky always really struck me and, and I'm probably botching it and maybe sort of <laughs> misattributing it too. It's probably Voltaire or something, but, um, you know, the technology doesn't become socially interesting until it's technologically boring. And so that is, um, once we've no longer once we're no longer dazzled by the newness of a thing mm. we'll start to do truly interesting things with it more often but until then most of what we do is probably going to be terrible or or you know or a lot of terrible stuff will happen and as as with anything i think you really need to ask yourself why you know why are we doing this what need are we satisfying and is this approach specifically truly the best way to satisfy that need mm. Yeah, and for you, it sounds like you clearly felt like the microlearning approach filled a niche. That was a, mm-hmm. the, the phrase that you used, and so it made sense. And then it sounds like you had been hesitant to even get in until you sort of yeah. figured out the right um, format, the right approach to it. Yeah, definitely. So what about some lessons um, that you've taken away from the experience of, of rolling out this first series of, of micro courses? And, and I know that they're really just out there. But do you have any words of of caution or words of encouragement um, for other organizations considering, you know, getting into micro learning? Sure. Um, Maybe, I think, I think I would say, steal good ideas that seem like they'd be a perfect fit for your member. Um, The great thing about the association community is that for the most part, we're not really competing directly with each other. So there's not a ton of incentive to be overly protective of a process or anything. It kind of behooves us all to share more, not just so that we can kind of collectively benefit, but even so that someone can take what you've done and adapt it and come up with a better version and share it back around and then you can benefit too. So it's if you go to the you know if you go to the Asha store and you check out any of the micro courses, it's pretty clear what what they're about, and we have sort of sample stuff there. So it's you know go for it. Excellent, stealing good ideas, <laughs> um, and y- you know 
again, I know you're very early on, but can you talk a little bit about what results you're you're hoping to get out of um, this this micro learning offering that you have out there, and and how you're measuring or evaluating um, the impact and success of this uh, initiative? Well, I think that I'm hoping to um, to really. Uh, to get people to do stuff. You know, I think that that, at least for me, um, more effective learning happens when I actually do it a lot. I mean, I think we kind of maybe probably all all know that. Um, So this, to me, seemed like both a way to deal with the time issue and simultaneously um, get you to practice stuff. Mm. And um, as far as measuring it, it's really, for us, it's always going to go back to that, you know, what I mentioned before. It's going to be, what kind of an impact it's having, both breadth and quality, and um, and then the non-dues revenue picture. And so I think that it's going to be, you know, that's going to be the key metrics that we're looking at, how, um, what kind of an impact and how much non-dues revenue. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the non-dues revenue is fairly straightforward for measuring that. In terms of the impact, do you have specific ways that you um, try, to, try to get at that or break down what impact means? Uh, the number of people and then the degree of satisfaction they have within the experience and sort of whether or not they come back based on that. Okay, great. Um, and so what about next steps for micro learning? Do you have other bundles of these micro courses in production already or um, are you sort of waiting to see before you take next steps? Yeah, actually, somebody a few weeks ago, a colleague in marketing asked me what our plans were for <laughs> microcourses next year, and I was kind of like, you know, crap, that's right. We, we probably need to develop content that is relevant to other slices of the membership. Um, so actually, kind of right around that moment, I kind of repeated my earlier process a little bit, and now we have a speaker lined up to develop a new series, but it's going to happen next year, uh, and it'll cover content that's tailored to a different major practice setting. And I think fundamentally, the answer is that uh, to create more of it and then to continue to assess the impact. Mm, great. So... We can move away from micro learning a, a little bit because I want to give you a chance to actually a chance to rant a bit. Um, <laughs> I, I know you've been um, at your own peril. Yeah. Well, um, I know you've been a little bit critical of, of some of the myth busting going on in learning and development, and I'm hoping that you'll um, be willing to specifically share your perspective on evaluations and kind of your beef with the the bad rap that that smile sheets have gotten. Okay. Well, definitely, I think I should clarify that I am all about myth busting. Um, so, like the attention span thing earlier that I talked about, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's like a notion out there that our attention span has fundamentally changed within, you know, the span of a couple of years or something. And no. to, that shorter, to me is, shorter than goldfish, right? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Highly implausible, just from a common sense sense mm-hmm. standpoint. And um, again, what makes a heck of a lot more sense is simply that. People have an extremely easy way to do something vastly more interesting. So the competitive landscape of attention is totally different now. And similarly, I think that um, if there is anybody out there that genuinely thinks that a smile sheet measures whether or not someone's learned anything, that's not right. Um, But I wonder whether or not that's really what people think. Smile sheets aren't measuring learning. As far as I can tell, we don't really have a great or easy or practical option to measure real learning and continuing ed. 
But smile sheets can measure customer satisfaction. We're not just in learning, we're in kind of the business of learning. And that business piece is pretty important. Um, our learners are our member and they're also our customer. So gauging whether or not they liked something is is extremely important. It's arguably just as important as whether or not they learned something, maybe. Mm. When it comes to CE, if people don't like it, they probably aren't learning anything either. Um, and I put I don't I put like learning preferences in the exact same category. Yeah, people don't retain knowledge better by reading or hearing or seeing or touching, but nonetheless, they may think they do, and they certainly may have a distinct preference for the way they consume information. And it's not about measuring learning; it's about that customer preference, which is a pr- pretty important thing to be aware of in a learning business. Yeah, um, and so it, it sounds like because you have those sort of two lenses, and you describe them as probably being, you know, the the opposite sides of the same coin that you have that member impact and that non dues revenue, both really driving what you're doing. So is it safe to assume that you're getting satisfaction surveys back from folks who um, are, are taking these micro courses? Yeah, I just don't think that it's measuring their learning. Right. I don't think we have a good way of doing that. I, but I do think it's it's giving us something that's valuable about how satisfied were they with the the, the experience and the product, and that's going to tell us something about how likely they will be to come back. You know, we may ask that explicitly too in the survey. But yeah, we um, that's a whole. Uh, I'm totally very, very interested and passionate about sort of data analytics and getting as much um, as we can out of people and figuring out what that tells us. Well, great. Well, then we'll switch topics a little bit again because I want to just give you uh, an opportunity to talk sort of big picture about what's going on in learning these days that excites you. And maybe it's something else that you have going on at ASHA. Maybe it's something in kind of the, the broader world of lifelong learning. But, you know, what what gets you really kind of pumped up when you're thinking about learning and, and the future of learning? Mm. Uh, well, we have like a ton of stuff happening all the time. And so for us, the next big thing is something that we've we've actually been working on for about two years now and should go live this upcoming summer. And I'm not going to spoil the surprise. I know that's totally obnoxious, <laughs> but um, it is something that's extremely exciting for me in a, a, a number of different ways. Generally speaking, and this could give some hints, but lately I've been really passionate about data analytics and user research, which are two key elements of personalization. Mm. Um, I'm not really that all that enthusiastic on much of the sort of technology hype that's out there. I kind of, I still recall kind of back when I first entered this industry that there was a really big push for um, virtual conferences, but with like an avatar that you'd walk around and visit booths right. and that sort of stuff. And at the time I was, you know, I was kind of coming down from a, being a really avid MMO gamer, you know, EQ and then wow. And hearing all of these people and learning excited about this idea Um which to me looked truly <laughs> awful compared to what I was experiencing right. regularly out of work. You know, that disconnect between the baseline for me and everybody else just really struck me at the time. And I think that it was kind of the moment that it was clear to me, when you look at new technology, you really need to focus on how it solves an actual problem. If you adopt it just because it's the new thing, it's it's probably going to stink and you're probably going to fail miserably. For the past couple of years... Um, to kind of answer your question, though, uh, I, I, I've been really stuck with the notion um, that 
that lifelong learning and maybe CE in general is kind of bullshit. Um, I hope you can edit that out and post <laughs> if that was a no-no. But um, I feel I feel like it's like lifelong learning is something that we really want to say is important, and we we think of ourselves favorably about, but we're not really doing anything tangible about, tangible about it. Uh, I've said a few times over the years that a lot of CE right now, maybe most of it, is just checking a box. Mm. And most of us aren't really even close to measuring whether or not actual learning occurs, much less measuring whether or not that education is leading to better member client outcomes. And those improved client outcomes are kind of the whole point of CE, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so that surprise that I alluded to, and again, I'm not going to spoil it, is really kind of our first step towards changing, changing the larger picture for us. It's a shift that is in many ways very obvious, but I think one that could be profoundly empowering for associations and for our members. And it kind of creates a new framework where that fantasy of making a real measurable difference is something that I think we, we may be able to take some plausible attempts at chipping away at. Mm. All right. So we have to get you back to talk about free courses and after next summer <laughs> when this mysterious right. big thing has launched. So, well, great. Um, another kind of big picture question, you know, what do you see as the major opportunities and threats for Asha specifically, but also other learning businesses in general. Mm-hmm. I kind of anticipated this one. I think that um, I, whenever I think about this question, I kind of always come back to the same thing, which for us, the generally speaking, I think the competition mm-hmm. is from for-profit groups, and that will probably always be a major challenge for us. Um, I, th- I also think that uh, how technology might impact the profession of our members is another big one. And that's actually an area where I think I worry that associations might be way behind in terms of looking for ways that to ensure that our members' profession thrives mm. with new technology in the years ahead. And I, I admit, I get a little bit hyper-focused on what we at ASHA are doing and what I, on our team really specifically. So maybe that picture isn't as dire as I think it is. Um, on the flip side, I think that the greatest opportunities lie with the brand equity that most associations still have. Members trust associations. So we kind of have this I, th- I think that we have this amazing opportunity where we can be the ones to develop practical solutions that genuinely um, address on-the-ground challenges and really empower our members. I think that a lot of members ideally hope to get that from us. And um, and fundamentally, I think that the, the trust that they have is ultimately reliant on our execution to fulfill that promise. Mm. Well said. So next to last question, I think this is one you've probably heard before. It's one we like to ask everybody who comes on, and it focuses on your own personal uh, learning. So what is one of the most powerful learning experiences you've been involved with as an adult since finishing up your formal education? This is kind of embarrassing because I... I pretty much think of myself as awful to regards to my own (laughs) professional development. I don't do nearly as much as I think I should do, if that Mm, makes any sense. Yeah. I I mean, I love this industry. I love working at ASHA. So a ton of passion really flows out of me into what I do. Um, I'm not sure that I could pick a specific learning experience. Um, I think I probably thrive most within 
environments that foster kind of serendipitous inspiration. So like when I participate as a learner, I kind of go, um, I automatically start thinking about what pieces of those ideas I could use or how does the discussion make me think a little different about an issue. And that's really where some new idea or thought might strike me. I I get actually, I get a ton of that from the team that I work at with every day. Mm. And as I've thought a little bit about this, um, I did, I did something with the team a couple of years ago. I invited a few people um, on our team and teams that we were closely, closely with to train them all on the ins and outs of our budget and forecasting process. And sort of along the lines of what I was mentioning about before, um, ASHA doesn't have exactly traditional upward mobility promotion tracks. So if you want a new position, you pretty much have to wait for an opening and apply. And an incidental benefit of that kind of approach is that Basically, nobody is gunning for anybody else's job. Mm. Because of that, there's no incentive to be secretive or protective of knowledge. And in fact, you can really empower your team with that knowledge. Um, so, for instance, like they'll know that if at, someone at Asha suggests we create a course on topic X, you know, they'll know immediately how much the, what direct expense and time it will take to create that course. But they'll also know how much revenue we'd expect from a course like that. Mm. So the potential opportunity cost of doing that course instead of one we would otherwise do. Um, and that, I think, is a really empowering, that's a really empowering knowledge. Mm-hmm. And and so we, we went through that for a year. It turned out that team turned out to be really amazing. And afterwards, I kind of invited a new cohort. But the old group actually shifted gears and shifted focus more to general business strategy. And so over the past year, we meet... Um, for an hour every two or three weeks to talk about something pressing or just interesting. Um, and instead of me leading the discussions, everyone in the group is is actually <laughs> obligated to, to lead several meetings on topics they're passionate about. And back to your question, I think that maybe the right answer for me is that um, my team and colleagues really inspire me a lot. And I kind of maybe have created a recurring conversation where that can happen regularly and um and ultimately that could be one of the more powerful learning opportunities i've 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 done Mm. well that does sound very powerful both this idea that it's this ongoing opportunity to discuss ideas and then i think related to what you were talking about with your micro courses you know that you want to get people doing stuff Mm. Then because it's this internal team, then you have this built-in opportunity to go and do based on those conversations you're having. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. And so final question is just if listeners want to know more about ASHA and the microlearning initiative, where should they go? And to the extent that you're open to it, how can they connect with you, Jack? (laughs) Uh, I don't know exactly how to put this. um, And this probably isn't exactly right, but I'm just like a normal person, I kind of feel like a little out of place even participating in this <laughs> podcast because you guys focus on interesting people who are real experts in their areas, and I don't really exactly see myself in that way at all. Um, any good ideas that ostensibly I have are really more of a product of a conversation, and I guess 
I guess ultimately the answer is to just reach out, to send me an email. You know, my email address is jcorson at asha.org. If you see me at a conference or something, just come up and say hi. You know, if, if you get anything from this, it's probably clear that I can talk like virtually forever about almost anything <laughs> I'm passionate about. And I'm, I'd love to share that. And more importantly to me, you know, I would really love to know what cool things other people are super passionate about and doing. And that conversation is where I think great things can come from. Well, thank you for sharing your passion with us today on the Leading Learning Podcast. I really appreciate your time and I enjoyed the conversation, Jack. Thank you. Me too. My pleasure. That wraps up our interview with Jack Carson. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 163. When you check out the show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. If you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing with the podcast. And while you're at the show notes, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you can leave us a comment uh, to tell us what you think about any particular episode or leading learning in general. In addition to that, we'd be really grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. You can go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. That'll put you in the right place. Salisa and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, reviews and ratings really play an important role in helping the podcast show up whenever people are searching for content related to the business of lifelong learning, continuing education, and professional development. We'd also be grateful if you would check out our sponsor for this episode, Learning Technology Design at ltd.tagoras.com. Again, this is our annual virtual conference, and if you, like most of our leading learning listeners, work in the business of lifelong learning, continuing education, and professional development, it is an event not to be missed. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. And you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leading lifelong learning and share us with others there as well as liking us. However you do it, please do help share the good word about leading learning. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.